I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. Sixty-eight percent of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, and communities of color breathe in nearly 40 percent more polluted air than white communities. African American children are three times as likely to suffer an asthma attack. These are undeniably stark statistics, and they are ones being addressed head-on by today's guest. Today, we welcome the extraordinarily accomplished Jackie Patterson, the Senior Director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program and Coordinator and Co-Founder of Women of Color United. As head of the NAACP's largest program, Jackie brings attention and a demand for action to the intersection of human rights and the environment. Before joining the National Office of the NAACP in 2009, she lent her considerable energy to advocacy work for women's rights, for those affected by HIV and AIDS, and for racial and economic justice. Jackie is a nationally respected expert in the field of environmental justice for black and brown people. We are honored to welcome her to We Can Be. Jackie, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. It's an honor. I want to talk about so much related to your work. It couldn't be more timely. I'm sure you would wish that it wasn't so timely. But you've been with the NAACP since 2009, and you now find yourself in a unique moment where there is maybe more awareness than any other time in in recent history, at least, about the two things that much of your work focuses on. One is the environment, and the other is the inequities that Black communities and individuals face on a daily basis. And I'd just love for you to reflect for a moment on how the current national climate is affecting the context for the work that you do. On so many levels, I mean, added in with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are finding ourselves with an intensity of demands for everything from our communities that are, of course, in deeper distress, whether it's communities like Laredo, Texas, that are experiencing shutoffs because they weren't able to be protected by the moratoriums, or it's the communities that are concerned because of the rollbacks of, I think, 68 and counting, moving towards 100 of environmental protections by the administration. And so Harvard studies found the connection to PM 2.5 particulate matter, our communities are more likely to be exposed to PM 2.5 particles because they come from burning, basically, whether it's combustion engines in our cars and trucks and so forth, or the burning of waste and incinerators, or the wood and biomass incinerators. So all the burning that happens regularly in our societies and communities that communities of color are disproportionately exposed to means that that PM 2.5 is proliferates in our communities. And so so in all those ways, we're experiencing an extreme amount of demands from our communities to help them to address all of these challenges. And then on the other hand, we have the demands from kind of an awakened society around racism. And so whether it's all these organizations writing to us, trying to quote unquote, pick our brains about ways that they can do better, you know, it's appreciated that people are trying to do that. But <laughs> our right. aunt, yeah, right. so those are the kind of changes that we've started to see. The environmental arena historically has been 
largely white and largely focused on issues that are perceived as being supported mostly by white citizens and white voters. And there has been a sense of disconnect with the black community in the past. And I'm I'm curious, when did NAACP decide this was an issue for black people that that organization needed to go after? And what brought you personally to this work? So the NAACP actually passed its first resolution related to environmental justice in 1973. Mm -hmm. So it really started to see back then, of course, the disproportionate impact of environmental injustice on black communities. Fast forward to more recently in 2009, there was a joint resolution between the NAACP and the National Wildlife Federation that talked about how climate change disproportionately impacts black communities. And it was a support and defense of the Clean Air Act resolution when I joined the program. And I didn't think I wanted to do it because I, I said, I don't want to work on climate change every day, all day. But, uh, but then I said, all right, I'll do it for a year just to get things kicked off. But that of course was in 2009. So what happened in that year that made you want to continue in this work? Really growing in my own analysis around the intersectionality of climate change with everything. Mm-hmm. And so it really isn't just about doing quote unquote climate change every day, all day in this traditional sense, but really how it, how climate is inextricably connected to everything from racism to food justice, to waste management, to water, to, you know, all these different things. So one is, is recognizing that it would be more more than kind of the traditional definition of climate change work. And then two, the fact that it it was dynamic. Like every year we were learning more, having to do more, having to integrate more, having to expand more. So it never moved into the maintenance phase. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're sort of inventing the field as you go along. I'm sure it must feel like that. Yes. You've mentioned the word intersection and intersectionality a lot. It's an important concept. It's the idea that no issue is one issue. It has intersections with other things and other dynamics. You write about this a lot. You talk about this a lot. You explore the concept of poor environmental conditions, how they adversely affect the basic civil and human rights of communities of color. And this is sort of the core notion that communities of color are particularly exposed And because of other societal conditions, particularly vulnerable to the effects of that exposure. So you have compounding problems around education, health, housing. You know, one might describe it as an endless loop of disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can just talk for a little bit, you know, just share with us how you see that loop and how you talk about it with people so that they understand it. Yeah, I mean, first off, one characterizes the endless loop of disadvantage, and then also at the same time, we talk about the endless loop of assets and opportunities, because that's one of the things that we quickly want to be able to do is to help deconstruct this narrative around disadvantage. But one of the stories that helps to illustrate the loop and the intersectionality is this young man who is in a place called Indian Town in Florida, who lives two miles away from a coal fire power plant and his asthma is such that his parents sent me a picture of this bag of medicines that he depends on to get from day to day. And they talked about how he's not able to go to school like 
like other kids because on poor air quality days, which is too many of the days in that community, he's not able to go to school. And the reality is that they also have missed days of work because of having to stay home with him on those missed days of school. And they can't afford childcare for that. And they talk about the lost wages and the lost potential for promotions. And then at the same time, they talk about what opportunities are not available to him because of these challenges. And when we look at him as part of a broader context of kids who experience similar with, as you say, 68% of African-Americans living within 30 miles of a coal fire power plant and African-American children being three to five times more likely to enter a hospital from asthma attack and two to three times more likely to die of an asthma attack. But we also know that, so if you're not able to go to school like other kids, then your chances of being on the grade level by the third grade are compromised. And that is the time when if you're not on grade level by the third grade, you are more likely, according to studies, to enter into the school to prison pipeline. So this is where we see all of these issues intersecting for our communities. And then you add on top of it all the fact that these same communities are a lot more likely to be food insecure and the health conditions that develop from being food insecure, even leading up to our disproportionate vulnerabilities to COVID-19 because of the pre-existing conditions conditions, many of which are tied to diet, like hypertension and diabetes and so forth. When you add climate change in, then we know that shifts in agricultural yields is one of the impacts of climate change. And then when you add on top of it all, we know that these very communities that are housing the coal-fired power plants and the oil refineries that are harming our health and well-being are the very communities that are so impoverished that they're more likely to have to make choices between paying an electricity bill and paying for other expenses, in addition to the fact that racism was what led to the redlining that causes a lot of these disparities, but even racism as it relates to how being in rears on, on paying your bills is treated. The National Center for Consumer Law found that an African-American who's in arrears on our electricity bill is more likely to be shut off than a white American who's in arrears on our electricity bills. So all of these things are kind of a web of disparities and intersecting challenges and as you say, disadvantages. And then when you add to that, and I'll stop after this, the fact that these very companies, you know, they'll cut off somebody for a non-payment for electricity bill. And that has had literally fatal impacts for people. People have paid the price of poverty with their lives. This hurts, it hurts, it hurts me. The grief was indescribable Monday night after Bonnie Edwards learned that her 36-year-old son Rodney Todd and all seven of his children, ages 6 to 15, had died here in their home. The cause? Accidental poisoning by carbon monoxide that came from a generator Todd had bought to keep his children warm after their power had been cut off. A woman in hospice care died just hours after PSE&G cut off the power to her house in Newark. It was so hot in here. She couldn't, she couldn't breathe. PSE&G said, oh, we're on our way, but no one showed up. As this bill shows, the family was sending in money. Desiree says two days before Linda died, $500. And yet you have these CEOs who make on average $9.8 million a year. And we have these companies that use those profits to then pay into anti-clean air, anti-clean energy lobbying. Right. And then they right. pay into groups like ALEC that advocate for voter suppression, 
prison privatization, water privatization, and everything else that disproportionately affects these very same communities. So again, the web and the loop of disadvantage plays out in so many ways. That was just a masterclass in how these pieces come together. What we tend to find is people love to isolate problems in their minds and make it about one thing. So when we hear that pollution in the community causes asthma, it's so easy to dismiss that. But you just built a web of connection in how all of these pieces come together and really are hugely impactful across society, and the stakes are high. I have to ask this question because what you just described with the shutoffs and the, the life and death nature of these decisions that are being made, often to punish people for nothing more than being poor, compounded in many cases for being black and poor, the stakes about on that are about to go up, right? Because we're facing a wave of evictions and shutoffs, probably like we've never seen mm-hmm. in the modern history of this country. Yeah. It's one thing to be aware of the problem, but how are you gearing up to combat this unprecedented wave that we're facing? Yeah, so in a number of ways. One is by not continuing to do what society always does, is put a Band-Aid on these types of things, but actually think about ways that we need to shift the entire system and recognize that the depth of the problem requires transformational solutions. The extent to which we'll be able to garner that level of political will is quite variable, but we are still pushing forward and pushing harder. For example, while we are joining the fight to push forward on a moratorium on shutoffs, we're also pushing forward hard on community-controlled and community-owned microgrids so that we are owning our energy infrastructure and that we are creating energy for the sake of providing energy to homes, not for the sake of lining the pockets of a CEO to the tune of $9.8 million. Rethinking all of the commons in a way that we ensure that the power literally in the hands of the people. It sounds trite, but it's but it's really, we have to institutionalize that as opposed to just giving it as a slogan. I, I just have to say this. You say that it sounds trite, but We've wandered so far from that idea. Exactly. I, I mean, we're not even close to there right. anymore. That's exactly it. That's why it feels radical to people to, to, right. to reimagine a society where communities and where human rights is at the center. You know, human rights for all versus profits and wealth in extreme obscene amounts for a very few. So mm-hmm. even our food systems, we have started this initiative called Seeds of Resistance and Resilience, where we're seeding 200 this year, 200 local food systems from like small rural areas to, you know, sub pockets of urban areas. So that we not only are doing that in a practical sense, but then we're coupling that with the advocacy agenda around food justice, moving subsidies away from big companies like Monsanto that create, you know, terminator seeds with only one cycle that are literally against the regenerative laws of nature and moving that to ensuring that there is locally held, locally controlled food systems that have as a goal making sure that everyone has access to food. <laughs> like that, right. that should be the goal of a food system. So really system by system, we are pushing for these kind of transformations. What's so fascinating about this is what you're describing really, even though it's the NAACP, isn't about race. Mm-hmm. Well, it is, and it isn't. I mean, it's an extension of also of, of thinking about the economics of oppression. Yeah. And you can just imagine the corporate execs 
um, shuddering at every word you just said. Oh, yes. it, it, it totally remakes the economic structure on which some companies are built. Uh, you know, I think your your reference to the idea of not profiting by shutting people off that really feels like a basic rights issue, and yet it's it's seen as a you know a radical statement. Right. I'm sure I, I'm sure you get only love letters. From that. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> that's why I go out with a hat and mustache. <laughs> yeah. What has surprised you in this work? You've been at it for a while now, mm-hmm. and you're clearly an expert. You have an expert way of talking about it. But what has surprised you? I think I get, I continue to get surprised at, at the level and the depth. Like, you know, maybe the, surprise might be a mild word, maybe horrified, you know. So yeah. even today, reading this headline that I'm sure you saw because it was in multiple about this fellow who was um, sentenced to life in prison. Oh, I feeling. saw that. Yeah, yeah. At the age of 38 in 1997, Fair Wayne Bryant was sentenced to life in prison for attempting to steal hedge clippers. The lone dissenter in the court's decision to uphold Fair Wayne Bryant's life sentence, Chief Justice Burnett Johnson is the only woman and only black member of an otherwise all-white male state Supreme Court. So when you read that and then you're like, oh, well, there must be something missing. Like they've like somehow pared down this headline in an sensational way. And it's not that. Right. So it's good that I can continue to be surprised. But I mean, maybe it's just my own kind of denial force naivete that I can still be surprised. Um, so the, I'm surprised at the level and depth of, you know, of that kind of thing that continues to happen. Like, you know, the grandmother who died, I mean, like just surprised at that, even though I work every day, all day in the system, I get surprised by the continued obtuseness about not seeing the depth of the challenge that people are experiencing and particularly when it's people in power not that i'm surprised by it but just distressed by the level of cluelessness of people in power but yet they're the ones who are making these decisions it's just scary i guess more (laughs) surprised might be more like you know shocked horror i'm curious about the environmental health vulnerabilities in communities of color that we've talked about have been made even more abundantly clear by the onset of COVID-19. Back in April, you took part in a press conference where you said that you feared, and I'm quoting now, Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color will experience the harshest fallout of the direct impact of the pandemic, end quote. And of course, you were correct. (laughs) So prescient. What has research shown about how a community's exposure to pollution affects how they respond to COVID-19? A couple of things. One is that if when communities like, you know, 71% of African-Americans live in counties in direct violation of federal air pollution standards, and whether it's exposure to coal-fired power plants or our disproportionate exposure to oil and gas industries or incinerators for waste management, not to mention the near roadway air pollution. The fact that African-American adults are more likely to die of lung disease, but less likely to smoke. So knowing that COVID attacks the lungs in particular, and our lungs have historically and every day are fighting to breathe collectively. And then on top of it all, the Harvard study that says that COVID attaches itself to particulate matter 2.5. So all of those things combine to make the pollution that disproportionately resides in our communities, a heavy risk factor for us on on so many levels. 
joining us now is the nation's top doctor, Surgeon General Jerome Adams. When you look at being black in America, number one, uh, people unfortunately are more likely to be of low socioeconomic status which makes it harder to social distance. Number two, we know that blacks are more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, lung disease. I represent that legacy of growing up poor and black in America, and I and many black Americans are at higher risk for COVID. It's why we need everyone to do their part to slow the spread. Particularly in the context of this post-COVID environment in which we're operating, the fact of these heightened exposures and risks it should be even more starkly apparent to people why this is important. Part of the what you call obtuseness that you encounter is people saying, in effect, look, yeah, okay, that's all bad, but that's just poverty in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's because they live in places where, you know, people who have economic choices don't have to live. The obtuseness is almost a fatalism about what can be done about it. When you deal with that question, what is your answer to people? So two things. One, in some ways, when people frame things in that specific way, I will point out, depending on who it is, either gently or otherwise, (laughs) that those very differences, there's a direct relationship. Like the people who are advantaged at the expense of those who are disadvantaged. And I find myself saying more often these days, so that people actually understand that Black people were separated from their families and generational wealth on the motherland and brought over to this country as cargo in the holes of ships to serve as assets and become the generational wealth of white people in America. Mm, And that without fully understanding that part of history and that part of how wealth has been generated, the obtuseness is going to persist and people really need to grasp that. And that that's why this conversation around reparations is one that has, like, whereas people want to kind of dismiss to say, well, that happened back then. And that, well, you know, no, the reason that you have the position you have now is because that happened back then. So it's a direct relationship. Therefore, uh, when we talk about the types of solutions, the types of solutions need to be rooted in a human rights for all, that we should all have equal access to to the commons and that this is a land of, of plenty and of bounty and it's possible you don't have to necessarily give up for other folks to be able to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive because we do have such abundance. And so with that, that's why it kind of for us ties back to really intentional investments in Black communities so that we really can organize systems that are are centering around you know community control, community ownership, because so much of our challenges come from not having that control and not having the ownership that others do. When you talk with folks who may be overwhelmed, you know they get it. They're not being obtuse. They want to fix it. They want to understand what they can do, but they feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem, which is a huge part of what's going on in our society generally today. I think. How do you help them think about here's how you can make a shift toward a healthy environment? I talk about our systems and and really focusing a lot on our energy systems that need to shift that as a whole, we just need to think about 
uh, regenerative systems that are more in harmony with nature and really that the earth was was designed divinely. <laughs> it was designed mm-hmm. in a way that the bounty regenerates itself if we do it right. One is at a very basic level is getting money out of politics. When we think about the ways our systems are designed to put profits in the hands of a wealthy few without respect to human or earth rights, each of those actions result in this kind of anti-regenerative agenda. So whether it's drilling or, and burning to generate energy, or it's creating seeds that only have one life cycle, or, or it's pushing back against policies that would have protected coal miners from coal dust that has resulted in 76,000 coal miners dying of black lung disease while their very employers have fought against the regulations yeah, that yeah. would have protected them. So all of that is tied to that wrong-headed thinking that's focused purely on profit. And so if we have people in office who are actually focused on systems providing the commons for people as opposed to providing the profits for corporations, then it actually starts to work together, you know? So if we just are, are, are looking at providing energy for people and we do it through regenerative systems of solar, we're protecting the environment and we're ensuring that we have this endless supply of energy for our communities. If we think about our food systems that's not shipped or trucked that puts out the emissions that ruin the environment, but we think about how do we make sure that everybody has access to food, then we have a system that where we're growing our own food and so forth. And so it starts with everyone starting to act that way themselves, whether it's trying to go solar or starting your own local garden or supporting your local food share and your local farmer's market, then you start, you can, as a consumer start to be a part of this new way of being that we all need. If you really pay attention to your recycling as opposed to just kind of throwing everything away, then we have less going to landfills or incinerators and more going to, again, regenerative through recovery, reusing and recycling. So each and every one of these systems, just being intentional about how we interact with them and then also being intentional about who's in power so that we can actually start to shift these systems, we can start getting there together. Interestingly, as I listened to you, Jack, and I hadn't known this about you until this conversation, but I, I should have, you use a lot of terminology that I would describe as a notion of celebrating abundance as opposed to focusing on what's not there. Can you say a little bit more about where that comes from for you? Because I think so much of what happens in our culture right now in particular is mm-hmm. that we think if we're going to fix these problems in a way that is more fair, it means for a lot of folks, they interpret that as you're going to take stuff away from them mm-hmm. to give to someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's the whole psychology of the zero-sum game or the pie being only so big. You, on the other hand, are talking about, no, there's plenty. Mm-hmm. So tell us about how you think about it. How I think about, well, I think I talked a little bit about how I think about it, but how we talk about it and how we operationalize it is really helping folks to, like when we first started, from what we first started to where we are now, now we have multiple projects that have started solar microgrids or rooftop solar for communities. And now people are seeing, like when we did our very first energy justice training, a woman said, you know, I had gotten my electricity cut off multiple times. They made me pay all these deposits in order to get my electricity back on. And I finally decided that I, you know, I'm going to 
put away that money that I would have paid to, to the energy company every month. And as I build up enough and I'm going to get a cooler to keep my cold products in and I'm going to buy a solar panel every time I save up enough and another solar panel every time I save up enough. And then she took her own journeyman's electrician's license, got up on her roof and installed solar panels. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Amazing. That was in Phoenix. I've been on the equator multiple times and I have never been as hot as I was when I yeah, yeah, yeah. And I arrived at night. Anyway, there's a lot there. It's all there for us. We just need to have the systems that provide access for people to reap it. Jackie, we're running out of time. We always end this program by asking our guests to complete the thought of the name of the program, which is We Can Be. Mm. I'm curious how you would end that sentence, We Can Be what? Yeah, we Can Be happy. <laughs> we can be, you know, we we have what we need to live in harmony and in abundance of what we need. Yeah. I think you're the very first person who's ever answered that question with we can be happy and I <laughs> and I thank you. This has been a a joyful conversation. There's a lot I'm going to take away, you know, as I reflect on on what it is I, I've heard from speaking with you, Jackie. I think it's important to start by acknowledging what is the reason for your work, which is that there are injustices around who gets exposed to environmental pollution and harm in our country that really affect Black Americans more than any other group. The consequences that flow from that are severe. I really do think you gave us a master class in what the web of connection looks like going from asthma to the impacts it has on loss of education, which leads to lost opportunities, lost wages and work for parents, what that means in terms of decreased wealth in the family, and how that feeds into the phenomenon that we see of later abuse and challenges in the school-to-prison pipeline, food insecurity, the choices, the terrible choices that people end up having to make in their lives. It is all connected, and you laid that out for us beautifully. You know, I just love this discussion about the life and death consequences that flow from some of these injustices, and particularly your notion of paying companies, allowing them to profit off of decisions to shut people off, and the life and death consequences that has literally people paying for being poor with their life. And then you came back to this idea that fixing it is all very possible. And you used a quote that the earth was designed divinely. I think running through your discourse is a notion that there is a bounteous system there for us to take advantage of if maybe we would only open our eyes to it. You've laid out a powerful moral challenge, but you've called attention to the fact that we have the solution within our means. 